But before I do, I want to share a couple uh, just uh, important things that you want to consider. Is each each uh, Sunday we encourage you to do uh, some discipline things and in engaging God's Word, and we give you in your outline a personal time with God, and we're going through the book Acts uh, this summer. I encourage you to be doing that, and also be praying for our missionaries. Uh, one of the missionaries that we're praying for this week, or the one that we have designated, is is William uh, is Wayne and Catherine Niles from the Congo, and I just received a mission letter from them. Kind of an exciting letter. It's a four-page letter. I don't have time to read the whole thing to you, but they had uh, been involved in the training of a native doctor uh, to get the skills, go to schooling, and then uh, practice in remote villages. And one of the things that just had happened recently is he was able to save a, a local teacher using diagnostic tools that we would consider very primitive, but because of just his heart for God and his desire to, to do his very, very best, so he was able to diagnose someone with an ultrasound that had tubercul TB. Uh, didn't ha the closest chest x-ray was 200 miles away, and uh, and just was able to, to rescue that, that life physically. But what was also exciting to hear about his story is his, uh, he's known as Dr. Frank uh, in, in the Congo, is he's also uh, one of the preaching pastors and a regular teacher in Sunday school. And so as he ministers to people physically, he uh, ministers to them spiritually. And it, it was just amazing, some of the pictures they showed about people waiting to get into his clinic and they're all outside under this huge tree just trying to get in to, to get some kind of help. But not only giving physical help, but giving spiritual help as well. Also, I want to let you know, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be uh, um, asking you to affirm or to vote on a candidate that, that the Elder Board has unanim unanimously uh, decided that we want to present to you. Um, Dan Mayer. Dan, will you just stand up there? Dan, just give Dan a, a round of applause. Um, but Dan's been here four and a half years, and we're recommending him to be uh, part of the elder team, and, and so be praying for him. If you've got some uh, concerns, then let any of the elders know, but we're going to be voting on him on, on the 19th, um, and we're, we're excited about that. Also, we had a great uh, turnout for our series, what we call our GHI, Grace Hills Institute, on Wednesday night. In fact, we kind of packed out the chapel, and when you pack out the chapel, it gets very, very warm. So we're going to be moving to the fellowship hall, and the air conditioning works a little bit better in there. But it's been a great opportunity to look at why we uh, can really have uh, confidence in this book being true. Not only because Jesus believes it, but because as we look at the two types of revelation, there's, this is what's called special revelation. I was talking to someone right before the service. But natural revelation is what God has placed in the universe. And it gives testimony that what he says in this book is actually true. So I encourage you to be involved in that if you'd like to come out on Wednesday night at 6.30 into our, our fellowship center. But this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at a, at a theme, uh, what would Jesus say to America? And as I came into the sanctuary this morning, I, I was thinking it was a little hot in here. And then I went over here that no one had turned on the air conditioning over here. And so I was thinking, I'm really going to bring the heat today in more ways than one. Um, but I, I got the air conditioning on. But I really trust as we look at this this morning that it will be helpful as we try to make sense of all the things that have been going on, particularly recently in America, and just kind of gets God's perspective. So before we do that, uh, let's look to the Lord in prayer uh, this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word speaks to, to where we live and how we live and what we are to be all about. And I pray that we, as we look at God's word this morning, that we're not trying to uh, give our own opinions about what, what we ought to think and what we ought to do and what we ought to say, but we, we get it from your book. And Father, we, we thank you that you are clear and want us to know uh, your plan and will for our lives. 
Help us to be discerning this day, and we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Uh, we uh, took a week off from our series in the book of Revelation, and I was planning to do that this week, and then I just, as I was praying and preparing for that message, God just kind of put it down on my heart that I, I probably need to speak to what's been going on. And as I was doing that, uh, when you begin studying, particularly what we would call a topical message, there, there's so many ways to approach it. There's so many angles, there's so many things to read, there's so many passages of scriptures you could turn to. And as I began studying, I began to think this one message is, should be a series of messages, but I, I really didn't sense a leading that way. So I'm going to try to put everything together in one shot this morning. Not that I'll be exhaustive in everything that we could say, but I, I think we'll hit the most important issues that we need to wrestle with as God's people. But before we do that, I just kind of want to kind of give you an analogy in terms of how I see life lived, and particularly in times like this, is that sometimes we wonder just what direction are we going as a nation? Are we ascending or are we, what, descending? And that's true not only as a nation, you could say that as a family, you could say that individually, you could say that as a church. Which way are we headed? Are we going up or are we going down? And, and, and that can be true in all kinds of the part of your, part of your life. This, this, uh, this past week on, on Monday, uh, I knew what my schedule was, and I said, you know, I'm going to try to put my exercise time together with getting to church, so I decided I would ride my bike to church. So I got up early enough to get going, and so I got everything on, and, and I, have, I have learned you can have fun without getting hurt, so, uh, so I now wear a helmet when I, when I now ride my bike. I didn't used to do that, but now I wear a helmet. So I got going, got on the um, there it is. And, and so I was, I was feeling pretty good, but I said, well, I ought to, I'd be a little bit careful. So I tested my brakes and I, I found out that my brake to my front wheel was a little bit timid. Okay. It didn't, wasn't quite engaging, but then I pressed my back brake, which is your more important brake, uh, particularly compared to how Tony rides a bike when he, he was going down a hill one time and he put his front brake on, he did an actual flip over the bike. And we all saw that in slow motion. His, his life went in through our eyes, as we, he was telling me everywhere. But, but I said, well, I got the back brake, so I'm doing pretty good. So I'm, I'm taking off from where I live in Lake Forest and driving here, uh, riding here, and everything's going well. And, and there were various places I had a break for slowing down as I would go down a small hill. And then I, then I got to uh, nearer to our church, and as I was looking ahead, I, I could see how the lights were turning. I had to go across uh, the highway that I was needed to turn on. And I, I saw just about, if I really put up the speed a little bit, that I could get there and make that light. And as I was making that speed, I, I noticed I was also on a downhill. Okay, And as I was going on the downhill, I was getting close to the light. And I realized, so I need, I need to put on my brakes. Well, I, I went to my left brake, which is my front wheel. And, and I, I, I knew I was going to get much out of that, but I got absolutely nothing out of it this time. And at the same time, I was turning my right hand for my back brake, and I discovered I got absolutely nothing out of that brake as well. And, and so I'm going down this slippery slope, as you might say, and I was getting no stoppage for my brakes. And I'm thinking, this is not good. <laughs> and so I said, I'm not going to make that light, but maybe I can stop so I don't go through the other intersection. So I, I kind of played the, the Fred Flintstone type of thing. So you, you put down your feet, you go, eh, you know, and, and, and uh, I, I slowed down, but I did not stop. So fortunately, I went through that other intersection, didn't hit any cars, and got to the other side safely. Now, the lesson learned is when your brakes aren't doing real well, don't go on your bike. That's the other side of it. But the other side is sometimes you're going down a certain pathway, and you think you've got it all figured out, and you know in your own mind that you can stop. 
But the reality is you can't. Or it's going to be very difficult or very dangerous trying to stop in a situation you put yourself in. Now, I think that's a warning for us all, not only nationally, but for our own family struggles as well as individually, that, that we need to understand that the choices that we make make a difference in how we live and ultimately if we'll live in what God has promised for those who become his people. And I want to say this right off the top. We happen to sing right now probably my favorite chorus, Your Grace is what? Enough. And I want to say in the midst of all that I'll say this morning, and I'm not even really sure all I'm going to say because i got more things to say here than, than I really have time to. But in the midst of anything I say this morning, God's grace is enough. That, that all of us, no matter what kind of lifestyle that we're walking down that path, God's grace can reach out and touch us and through his gift give us what we don't deserve. But what, what is it that Jesus would say to America if he showed up in this pulpit this morning or any pulpit or any platform in which Americans could hear his voice? Well, that, that's what I want to do this morning. But let me, let me give a qualification here. I, I don't have any more direct line to Jesus than anybody else does. So in, in many ways, a more appropriate title to this message would be, What is Jesus Saying to America? And you say, well, how, how does that solve that whole tension in terms of not having a direct line to Jesus? Because what is Jesus saying to America is what Jesus has said to America. Amen? I mean, th this book contains what, what God, through his son Jesus, is saying. And he keeps on saying it. And the question for us, are, are we listening to what he has said and is saying and will say to anybody who will listen? And coming from my perspective, let me just be very clear. Jesus is the author of this book. And so whether the, the letters are red or black, it, that makes no difference. Either God has given us this as our instruction manual, or he is not. And every part of it is important. Now, we need to understand that we need to interpret it correctly and carefully, and not superficially, but Jesus has spoken. Now, what does he want us to know about what he has said, is saying, and will continue to say? Well, let's, let's try to get at, to, at it this morning. First of all, Jesus speaking. I'll put it in the first person, though it's not, I'm not trying to be Jesus here, but I'm trying to be a spokesman for Jesus. What would Jesus say to America? Know this. I want the church to realize that I am more concerned about what is happening in it than in the country. I want the church to realize that I am more concerned about what is happening in it than in the country. Now, now where do I get that? Because it's pretty plain uh, in one of his disciples, he said this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin where? With the household of God. 
And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, we need to be the picture of what God does with people who know him. And when we somehow get the idea that we expect non-Christians to act like Christians, we've missed the message. Our first responsibility is to expect Christians to act like what? Christians. It is the people of God who know God ought to show that they know God. People who don't know God, it should not surprise us. They're not coming from that perspective. If you have your Bibles, we'll turn to some of the passages because there wouldn't have been a place to put it all in the outlines. But turn in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We have, and there are many passages that we could turn to that, that speak about God wanting his people to be uh, concerned about how they are living. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, I, I wrote you in my letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, not to associate with immoral people. Wow, if you just stop there and then read on, you go, well, uh, then I, I can't relate to who? Anybody. Because let's just, let's just be clear here. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. So, so all of us, from God's perspective, from God's standard, we all fall short, right? So you can't even be friends with yourself, right? Because who are you going to associate? If you're not going to associate with people who aren't perfect, you can't associate with anybody, all right? But he doesn't stop there. He goes, I, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and the swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Now, let's just take it from the example of Jesus. Jesus, in fact, he got probably as much if not more criticism for this part of his lifestyle. It is Jesus was known as a what to sinners? Friend to sinners, Right? Now, the other part he got criticized for was when he was critical of people who were in covenant relationship with God. He attacked spiritual hypocrisy among people who claimed to know God, right? But for those who did not know God, he was a friend to those who were sinners. He goes on in verse 11, But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an adulterer or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? So what would Jesus say? And this is, a, you know, I, I, these are really simple points this morning. But, but Jesus is speaking to America, and then he targets the groups in America, and says, I'm, I, want, I want Americans to know that I am much more concerned about what is happening in the church than in the country at large. So as we get upset, and there's a variety of reasons why we ought to set maybe the direction our country is going, he, he's not calling the church to be a political action group because if you go through the Gospels, how many times was Jesus involved in politics? I... Boy, it's pretty mysterious. I don't see a whole lot of it, right? And we need to understand that God has called his people, his church, not to save America, but to save Americans, right? That's our mission. And that begins by us living it out so they can see what we have. 
Now, there's a variety of things as we look at the church at large that is somewhat sobering. And again, we talked in the beginning, God's grace is enough. All sin needs to be covered by the cross. And the message of the church is not always a popular message because we are not called to condone sin because when we condone sin, we basically tell people they can't change and the cross means nothing. And particular sins are just a byproduct of a heart that's far from God. But let's just look at some things. The abortion rate among Protestant women is slightly higher than that of the overall rate throughout America. Well, we, we can rail against abortion, but when it's happening more often in the church than it is outside the church, then God is more concerned about what's happening here than what's happening in the rest of the nation. Cohabitation is now the new normal. I mean, that, that's just, that's just, and it's happening in the church. And I can give you, I could, I could give you names, all right? Between 40% to 50% of married people in the U.S. divorce, and subsequent marriages are even higher, and there's no difference between the amount of divorces in the world and in the church. As one writer said this week, the whole idea of our nation going far from traditional understanding of marriage has been happening for decades. Just decades. I mean, the word fornication, which is sex before you get married, I mean, people don't even talk about that anymore, right? I mean, I, I remember the, I was, when I first came here, I went to, a, I hardly ever go to these things, but I went to an interfaith grouping of people, and they were talking about, it was interesting, they were talking about ministering to the homosexual lifestyle of those in the community, and, and the statement by just about everyone, and they're all churches, except, was, well, you can't keep people, young people, from having sex. That's, they're just going to have it. There's nothing, they, they will not say no. Is that really the new normal? Has God, who created us in his image, given us the inability to say no to our desires? That's the message out there. And, and that, that's the message that we have allowed to permeate our culture. See, the homosexual issue, if you have the right numbers right now, there is um, b between 2 to 3% of, of our population that are um, avowed um, people who have same-sex relationships. 2 to 3%. What kind of percent do you think we have of people who are having sex outside of marriage? It's huge. About two-thirds of men view pornography at least monthly. And again, the figure for those men inside the church and outside the church, there's really no statistical significant difference. Two-thirds of men are, are, are viewing pornography on a monthly basis. So the whole idea of purity within our culture, we have a much bigger problem than what happened in the Supreme Court a week or two ago. 
In fact, to throw a political statement apart, the, the, the gravest concern about what happened in the Supreme Court, I mean, is as much about the what, but it's also the why. The what, I think they're just hurting people by normalizing a behavior which the Bible would say is not only is wrong, but is destructive. And see, the reason, and we're going to talk about that if I ever get to it, uh, you know, the, the, the reason we are against sin is not only does that make us guilty before God, that God can forgive, but that any kind of behavior that's against what God has said is self-destructive. And it's destructive not only for the person, but for those around them. Now, people can argue with that, but I think if you look at that honestly, you'll find in every case where the Bible describes things are, are sinful, it's all destructive. And the whole idea of saying, the, 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 the whole issue of the why, why did they, why did they the, the five Supreme Court justices go that direction primarily because of of polls that have now said Americans uh, in a majority now see that as a legitimate lifestyle, okay? Now, the two questions related to that. Number one, if that were true, then why not let the states vote on it? If you believe it's going to win anyway, then just let the, the population vote on that affirmation of that definition of a union between two people that become uh, known as a marriage. Uh, but they decided, no, that they wanted to uh, impose that on the rest of, of America. Uh, but, but, and then secondly, there, there's nothing in the Constitution that would, would give validation for that viewpoint. That was just an imposed perspective. Uh, and and that's, that's the danger that we have now, is now, now we are inventing things to say that which is right and that which is wrong and what is acceptable, that which is not acceptable. We, we have no sense of, okay, is there any such thing as a Absolute truth, supreme law, natural law, whatever it might be. And, and that slope coming down on a bicycle down a hill, you know, with no brakes and saying, I can stop at any time and find you can't stop when you go down a certain speed at a certain rate. It, it can happen again in a nation or in a church or in a family or an individual. And, and, but by the grace of God and God's grace is sufficient to, to, to be able to stop that, but it's dangerous. And we need to be very, very careful. Um, Joseph, uh, just one real quick. As it relates, we, and, and the whole question about morality or things that are right or wrong, we legal, we, some people say, well, you can't legislate morality. You've ever heard that? You ever anybody say that? You can't legislate morality? We do that all the time. All of our laws are legislating morality. And what Joseph Alito said in the, in the debate of this, okay, if the arguments that you're giving, which was basically on a populist perspective, if, if we apply that, then what would keep four people joining together in, in a relationship that all four of us are married, which is the whole idea of polygamy. And, and particularly since he was speaking to lawyers, I said, well, I'm talking about people that are, are well-educated, and it was all by way of consent. Let's say four lawyers 
decided they would gather together and, and become married? What would be the, the reason the state, the government, would say, no, we're not going to allow that to happen, which is right now the law of the land? And, of course, the argument would be there is no really reason other than saying we don't think that's good for people and a nation. And, and that's, that's really, again, as we think about sin, as we think about things that are right or wrong, we're saying these things um, are, are not good for people to participate in. But the issue for God's church is to realize he's saying we need to clean up our act. We need to have a perspective about sex before marriage, between um, not just same-sex people, but opposite sex. And the whole issue of adultery within um, people who are in the church, that needs to be addressed. The whole issue of having sex in your mind by, by viewing pictures on a, on a screen needs to be addressed honestly by people who want to be Christ followers. Now again, God's grace is enough. We all need God's forgiveness. But we need to realize what direction are we going and are we, are we honest about what's happening in the life of God's people? Number one, Jesus would say, I want the church to realize I'm more concerned about what is happening in it than in the country. Secondly, I want my people to know what they believe and why they believe it. Um, I, I just passed over a bunch of things I was going to say on that point, but let me give you something else, all right? One of the things that concerns me more than anything else is, is, is how God's people discern what they believe or what they don't believe. And it's often, again, based on, well, this is how I feel. This is how I think. This is, this is my opinion. This is my approach to it. I was reading uh, on social media this statement by a, a, a woman that I, that I really think speaks to how, how we're losing the more important battles rather than singular issues. But the greater issue is where is the source of authority in our lives? And this is what she wrote in a number of different posts. We don't know what God's word really is. The Bible has been translated and rewritten so many times, there's no way to know what God or Jesus actually said or proclaimed. It's nothing but the interpretations of what men wrote thousands of years ago. The Bible should only be used as a reference book and not to be taken as gospel. Um, I, I do believe in God. I'm an elder in my church, have been a deacon, and am singing in the church uh, tomorrow on Sunday, which Allegra, people who sing in church have to be very careful about that. You know. <laughs> there is no way to verify the accuracy of the Bible. It's still written by man and therefore should not be taken, it, therefore it should be taken with a grain of salt. The Bible is a good teaching and reference guide and should remain as such. It really is not of anyone's business how other people decide to live their lives. Now, in case I'm not clear here, God's people need to be concerned about how God's people live their lives. For people outside God's family, we're just trying to rescue their soul. We're trying to present them to Jesus. Okay, I, I, I don't expect them to believe this book, but people in God's church have to decide once about what, what do you believe and why do you believe it? Where is the source of authority for your life? If someone has said, do you judge this book 
or do you allow this book to judge you? It really gets down as simple as that. Now, there are a variety of reasons why, why we can believe this book is from God. Uh, one, if, if you do believe in Jesus, Jesus believes this book was from God. He said, not even one little jot or tittle, everything in this book is going to be fulfilled. Every part of it. The Bible says all scripture is inspired by God. All of it. And it's profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All of it's there. Jesus said this, and this is the red letter edition. Sanctify them in truth. Set them apart in truth. Why? Because thy word is what? Truth. Now, from a human perspective, this book can be believed for a variety of reasons. One, the whole multiple translations and multiple manuscripts that we have from the original just demonstrates all you had to go to the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is now in L.A., and see how God has affirmed the accurate transmission throughout the ages from this book. That, that it is historically reliable. That it is unlike any other book that's ever been written. You know, over 1,500 years by 40 different authors and three different contracts, three different languages. And you look at every central theme is united and, and true in the sense of it, it, there's no inconsistency in it. How do you explain that? You look at all the prophecies that were fulfilled. I mean, it's just the probability of all the things that were predicted hundreds and thousands of years before it actually happened, and it happened every time exactly as God said it. How do you explain that? And I've come to the point in my life, it takes, I'm really convinced, it takes more faith to believe this Bible, this book is not from God than to believe it is, that it is from God. I've come to the point now, I'm almost believing this book by sight more than by faith because there, there's so many convincing reasons to believe this is true. But what I'm saying, again, as simply as possible, what is, God say, what is Jesus saying to America? And again, now he's saying it to people in the church, but you've got to decide. I've got to decide. What is it you believe? And why do you believe it? Now, often what people will say, well, it's all, even if they believe it's, it, it is from God and people struggle with that, they would say, well, yeah, but the, even if it is from God, it's, it's open to interpretation right well look there are things in the bible that are difficult to understand we're going through a book that's difficult to understand the book of revelation there's some things in there that are just just as clearly stated as any other thing that you would read in any other book or or magazine or anything on the internet i mean it's just it's just clear okay other things are open for interpretation but but let's just look at the whole issue of Homosexuality. Uh, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Has God stuttered when he, when he, he spoke? H has he been uh, unclear when he has stated his view? Um, some areas, the Bible says, the secret things belong to the Lord. We're going to look at next Lord's Day, Lord willing, in Revelation 10, where he reveals to John some things. He said, oh, by the way, I don't want you to explain that to anybody else. I just gave it to you. There are some things God has left in the mystery, but, but boy, there's some, some things he, he said that are pretty plain. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over. He's speaking to those who have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. And I've had questions where people say, well, why is it people are doing this? What's the motive behind all this? Because they don't want to hear the truth. Because if, it, if they hear the truth and they are convinced it is the truth, then they're accountable to the truth. In many ways, 
I mean, it was, it was a foolish thing for me to take my bike when I know, knew my, my brakes weren't operating the, 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 you know, the, the best level. But let's say I had been ignorant of that. Well, it would have been less accountability, right? But once you know something and you decide to ignore it, you know, it's, you can only blame yourself, right? Isn't that true? And so people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And he says in verse 26, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their, their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as God did not see fit to acknowledge, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to the depraved mind and to do those things which are not proper. And then he lists a whole nother list of sins. And if you want to identify what God hates, which is our sin, just read the rest of that. And we, we've, all of us fall in those categories. Just even the things that come out of our mouth that destroy people. But, but what God says plainly, it's unnatural for how I created people for two people of the same sex to join physically. And that's the whole byproduct. If you look back into our, our history as a nation where they re appeal to natural law, it's like this. This, this is just not natural. This is not how we see what happens in this world. And if we don't see this happening in a healthy way in this world, we shouldn't, we shouldn't affirm it. And so God has been clear. You don't have to go back into Leviticus. And, and there's ways to understand some of the objections that people put out. And I had thought about explaining all those difficult passages. Well, how, do you, how do you relate to God saying that um, homosexual acts are an abomination? And he said, well, don't eat shellfish, you know. Well, there's a whole difference in the context there. But here it's totally plain. So what does God say to the church? What does Jesus say to America? He says to the churches, I'm more concerned about what's happening in your, in your place than outside your place. I'm concerned about what's happening in the church, not even more than the country. You need to know what you believe and why you believe it. Thirdly, I want all to hear my way is best. People can change. And I never said it would be easy. See, we have to be convinced that when we share, and again, when we get involved in people's lives and, and we find out their lives are a mess and we, we talk about God's grace and God's hope, we're convinced that we're helping them, not hurting them. Jesus said, I didn't, I did not come to kill and destroy like the thief did. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. The gospel means good news. And so when when I disagree with someone who, who feels that's a legitimate lifestyle, I'm not, I'm not attacking them. I'm just saying, you can go down that path. But I want you to know that's not the best. It's self-destructive. And when people say, well, I, I, I'd be willing to change, but that's who I am. And I say, look, at everybody can change. Anybody can change. The Bible says that, I didn't put this passage down, but it's a familiar one. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature the old things passed away behold new things have come and he says hey you don't have to be conformed to this world you can be transformed ah, by by re the renewing of your mind and, and god can take the truth and change you on the inside out but i want all to hear my ways best people can change 
And I never said it would be easy. And see, here, here is where in the church and in the culture or in the country, we've, we've bought that lie. If it's, if it's not easy, then you don't have to do it, right? There's an amazing passage in Hebrews chapter 12. He's speaking to Christians, people inside the church. He says, For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You ever get tired of trying to do the right thing? Am I the only one? I mean, I'm just tired. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. I don't know what pictures in your mind, but that sounds like it's not going to be easy sometimes to get past certain sin. And all things we talked about before, there are people who are wired in such a way for nurture or nature, whatever it might be, that they're attracted to, let's say, a married man, to women that are not their spouse, right? But we're saying to them, even though that's your natural inclination, you need to resist that and just say what? No. There are, and let, let's just get it more of the, ooh, okay, there are, there are, and we'll, we'll just put on the men for a little moment. There are men who are attracted physically to people that are a lot younger than them. A lot younger than them. And I, I know some of those people personally. They're attracted to children physically. And we as a culture say, I don't care why you're that way, whether it was nature or nurture, but we're saying you need to say what? No. Now, I, I think because we're creating God's image, people can say no. It's limited. But when you become a Christian, you can learn to say no to that. And whenever we, we tell ourselves the lie, that's just, that's just the way I am. And give up the struggle. Now, there are certain things we might struggle our entire life. Our desires might never change, but our actions can change. And see, that's the message. That's, that's the message. Jesus said, and the reason, again, we have to put in context of, of God's grace. I'm, I'm giving you this. This is good news for you. And when, when things aren't working out right, people just want to bail, right? My natural thing, when things aren't right, I just want to quit, right? Whatever it might be. And God says, you don't have to. In fact, don't. Give everything you have to resist that. We won't turn to the passage because I'm almost past my time. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11, he gives a whole list of things. A whole list of things that are just like, oh, man, these people are basket cases. He said, oh, oh by the way, you were those people. You're not those people now. And, and again, we, we justify all kinds of, you know, socially acceptable things like gossip and, you know, and unforgiveness and, you know, bitterness and whatever it might be, or, or kind of uh, assassinating people with, with uh, either our words or actions. But, but look at God is able to deliver people from the actions that they're participating in. That's the message. There's a message. We're not just telling people to do that which they can't do. Jesus never asked us to do that which we can't do. He empowers us. But it's not going to be easy. Fourthly, 
Jesus is saying this to the people in the church, but also outside. I want everyone to be treated with respect. And here is where the church has failed, I think, at times. Not, not that we haven't been able to prevent what the Supreme Court has done. I, I don't think that was preventable, personally. I think that's a pathway that went down, and, and um, at least I don't think it could have been prevented politically from us being more active. Maybe if we'd been more the church that we were supposed to be, it could have been forbidden. But we, we don't hate homosexuals. We don't hate adulterers. We don't hate people who have been divorced. We, we don't hate anybody you put in that, that category. And, and everyone needs to be treated with respect. First Peter chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but, to all, but also to those who are unreasonable. Now, I don't like to treat people well who are unreasonable, but we're to treat everybody with respect. Now, however that works out, we, that's our call. One writer I, I was reading this past week says, well, well, yeah, it's one thing to say, what would Jesus say to America, but what would we say to people in America, particularly those who are going down this path? And one of the things we would say is that we love you. We, we believe that God's, God's way is, is better than the way you're going, but we, we will always love you, and, and we'll be here for you. We, we will not condemn you. We will not condone your behavior. But we will, we will try to point you in the right direction. Fifthly, Jesus would say this to America. I want each one in America to know there is a final judgment coming. You know, the Supreme Court, you know, they can, they can make the way we're constituted a lot of a lot of judgments, and I know I'm not speaking to every issue that maybe you wanted me to speak to as far as, you know, where, where's the place for civil disobedience? I don't think it's in this area until the government imposes its will on us. I mean, the church will not participate in uh, marriages, of, though some churches have now gone that direction, but, you know, we as a church have made a stand that we would not participate in the ceremony of joining two people together and in a marriage relationship, if they were of the same sex, we wouldn't condemn them, but we'd say that's, that's not a marriage in terms of how God has instituted it. Uh, but until the government imposes that we have to do that which is sinful to us, uh, I don't think there's a place for civil disobedience. That's from my perspective. But there, there, is, there are consequences for choices, nationally and personally, and there's a final judgment coming. And just a couple things, just to read. Or do, do you not think lightly of the riches of the kindness and tolerance and patience, we could say grace of God, not knowing the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the, of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. There's a judgment coming. And if, if we're going to fear anything in life, this is, what, this is what is said in the Gospels. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. 
but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. These aren't light issues that God's word speaks to. Our desire is to to reach as many people as possible. Every sinner needs a savior. We should be involved in our country and trying to make it as best as it can be. But, But the first step is God's people to be what God wants it to be. I, I, I close with this one statement from, remember the, the writer of, of uh, the Brave New World, Alice Huxley. He was a, a leading atheist and evolutionist of his time. And he wrote this in The Brave New World. He's, he's trying to change all the, the price tags and all the, the values in a world. He says, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Consequently, assuming that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness, which is basically... Everybody can do that which is right in their own eyes. There's no ultimate truth that you can go down any direction you want. It's all up to you because there's no ultimate purpose in this world that came into existence by chance. Was essentially an instrument of liberation. And we just, this is July 5th and yesterday was July 4th, our celebration of our freedom. The liberation or freedom we desired was simultaneously freedom from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfaced and interfered with our sexual freedom. Freedom is not the freedom to do what you want. It's the freedom to do what you ought and what's best. Let's pray. Father, I would, I would, I would pray that what we have wrestled with is what we want to wrestle with all of our lives. That we are to be what you've called your children to be. And there's going to be tension in living that out. We don't condone sin, but we don't condemn the sinner because that's your role. We draw the line of what we can participate in, but we, we reach out to those in need. But Father, you've called your people to be people who, who struggle with sin, struggle with choices. But above all else, know who is our Lord, who is the writer of that book that gives us instructions for life, and that we live for your honor and not our own, for your pleasure and not our own. But when we do that, life experiences are finding abundance with the one who made us and made us the way we ought to live. Father, as we go to the communion table in just a moment, this is, this is the table of the gospel. It's the table of the cross. It says that, that we are lost apart from Jesus dying for our sins and raising from the dead. And you've called us to put our faith and trust in you. And every time we participate in the communion table, We are making a statement of faith that we believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord, and we want to live for him. 
as we each partake of the cup and the bread, might we be reminded of the sacrifice made for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.